Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through your stories and the stories of other professionals and patients. And we listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with your patients right away. If you're a nurse, you can go to rnegade.pro. I'll put it in the show notes to get credits for listening today. You're already listening, so you might as well get the credits. Today, I am talking about five practical ways to reframe trauma narratives. And a trauma narrative is really a story that people tell themselves about Um, how they experienced trauma or ways that trauma harmed them. And sometimes those narratives that they give themselves can be pretty dysfunctional. So I'm going to give you five examples of things that I hear patients say, and then how I reframe that for them from a point of strength and resilience, which is really what I love doing to support families and adults and kids who have experienced complex trauma. So The first one, let's just dig right in, right? My brain is messed up. My brain is effed up. People just tell me all the time, what is wrong with my brain? Like, I can't remember things. I'm avoidant of things. I don't have the motivation to do things. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I get triggered. Whatever the case may be, they really feel like they are um, experiencing a brain that is somehow damaged or has been damaged and they feel really hopeless about it. So this is the way I approach it with them. First of all, your brain's not messed up. If you remember from last week's episode, and if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to my episode called Your Brain is Beautiful. One of the first things I tell people is this, look, your brain's beautiful. It was trying to protect you during really vulnerable times. If we think about especially adults or older kids who experience complex trauma as youth, What happens is that their brain kind of rewires itself to have this protective mechanism for them. In fact, there's research that shows that our gray matter actually shifts and changes as a protective mechanism. Kids that have experienced or witnessed domestic violence have part of the visual cortex that shuts down. Um, Kids that have witnessed uh, or experienced corporal punishment have parts of their verbal shift in how they're developing. And so usually our brains are like these really complex, fast working systems where synapses are connecting all the time. And it's like this four four lane super highway. Well, when trauma occurs, it's like these neuronal connections slow down and reshape and reform. And it's more like being on this kind of curvy back country road. And so of course, connections don't feel as quick. Memories don't feel as Um, real or sharp because your brain has done something to reformulate itself to protect you. So your brain isn't messed up. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's protective. And we have research that actually supports how our brains shift and change through that protective mechanism. So that's number one. First and foremost, your brain isn't messed up. You're not messed up. Nothing wrong with your brain. The second thing is what people tell me, I am worried all of the time. I worry about everything all of the time. And this might be an adult patient that you're seeing, maybe a woman who feels constantly overwhelmed or fatigued. Maybe it's a teenager who just 
feels like she's got racing thoughts all of the time, or an older adult male who can't seem to compartmentalize or slow down. And so he's constantly busy, busy, busy um, as a way of his brain kind of avoiding or protecting. And so what I tell people is this, here's the reframe. Of course, you're worried all the time. If you experienced abuse in your home, if you experienced sexual abuse from a family member who should have been loving and protective, if you were a kid and you witnessed domestic violence from two people who were in your home that were supposed to care about each other and for you, of course you're worried about everything all the time. Because again, during this very primitive time in your life where you were supposed to be understanding connection and relationships and attachment, really scary things were happening. And so your brain said, oh my gosh, I really better pay attention to this. I should pay attention to everything all the time. We call that hypervigilance. And so our brains turn on and they're hyper-focused often and always because they're constantly queuing for danger. Because in the environment that you grew up where when you were developing all those neural connections, it made sense to your brain to go, I need to pay attention to everything and everyone all the time because that will keep me safe. So when someone says to you, I'm worried all the time, or I'm feeling overwhelmed all the time, or I feel like my brain is busy all the time, the first thing you can say to them is, of course it is. It's your brain's way of protecting itself. It learned how to be hypervigilant as a way of being safe. All right. Third thing, people often say to me, I'm always trying to take care of other people. I'm always trying to figure out what other people want. And again, the reframe for them is, of course you are. That's normal. So for example, if you grew up with a mom that was emotionally abusive, if you had an alcoholic father, if you grew up in an environment where there was domestic violence, you lived in an environment where reading those cues of caregivers was really important. So if uh, your mom was super abusive verbally and said harsh, cruel things to you, you would want to get out of the way, get out of the room, go somewhere else, protect your siblings. If your father was an alcoholic and he either got unsafe or scary when he was intoxicated, then you want to find ways to take care of him, clean up messes, make sure he's okay, make sure people are safe. And the same thing with domestic violence. Often kids, especially the oldest kids in families, will engage in protective behavior. And so what does that look like when we become older teens or adults or older adults? Well, it looks like I'm constantly trying to figure out what people need and how to keep people happy because that kept me safe. So we want to validate for people that is normal. You lived in an environment where those cues and reading those cues and anticipating what everybody needed so that everybody was okay was a survival mechanism for your safety maybe for your sibling's safety or one of your parents' safety. So again, we just want to normalize that that is a protective, typical reaction to someone who's experienced complex trauma. The fourth thing I hear a lot is, I don't remember things. I don't remember dates or people or experiences or names or whatever the case may be. Here's your reframe. Of course, there's that beautiful brain of yours again, working in overtime. It was learning to remember to shut down for experiences that were too painful, right? I was, I was saying a little bit ago, like all of this research on gray matter that shows like 
the language portions of our brain shut down when we're experiencing uh, emotional abuse. The visual cortex of our brain shuts down when we witness domestic violence. Parts of our brain that are responsible for social emotional cueing shut down when we experience sexual abuse. It's our brain's way of reformulating itself to survive. So if you were in a space where you were in danger or people you loved were in danger or you were um, fighting for your safety, your brain had much more important things to do than to remember someone's name or a memory of of a positive experience or uh, the date when something happened. Your brain was in fight or flight mode, fight, flight, faint, freeze. It had to do things to keep you alive and safe and protected. So it's not going to remember little things like, where did you spend your fifth Christmas? Or what color was your bedroom when you were growing up? Or who's your favorite aunt and where does she live? Those things that you might be listening to other people talk and they have these very vivid memories of their childhood. When your brain's in survival mode, it is moving stuff around and saying, this is painful. I can't manage that right now. I have to just focus on survival. Um, you know, one way to think about that is that when we are in a state of fight or flight, our learning and memory center is shut down, right? So think about this, like if you're an educator or if you're a physician or nurse and you're trying to teach someone something and they're in a state of hypervigilance or fear or terror or wanting to get out of there or they're physically fighting, their brain is not learning, Those other parts of your brain that are responsible for memory and concentration and focus, those are all kind of like prefrontal cortex in the front of your brain that is needed to like weigh pros and cons and make decisions and remember things and problem solve. And those are not accessible when we are in our limbic system, when we're in our emotion system, when we are in that fight or flight part of our brain, our brain says, no, 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 no. We're going to go back to this primal state of just being alive. We don't have time to remember all those other things. We don't have time to learn. And the only way we're going to remember things and encode things into our memory is if we're in an active state of learning. We can't be in an active state of learning if we're in a state of trauma and overwhelm. So again, when you have people who are saying, I don't remember things, or I don't have vivid memories of my childhood, or I don't remember certain details around my trauma, the who, what, when, it's because their brain was fighting to stay alive. Okay. The last thing often people will say me say to me excuse me is why don't i trust people well the answer to that is that their core trust has been broken a child's number one job when they're growing up is to attach and to attach to the caregivers in their life complex trauma the definition of complex trauma is that when we experience abuse over the course of a period of time with little to no access to resources or support. There are beautiful researchers in the area of trauma that talk about how trauma becomes more complex because we experience the trauma alone. So if you're a little kid or a teenager and you've gone through something like domestic violence or emotional abuse or sexual trafficking or bullying um, or violence, witnessing violence in some sort, what happens is that when we experience that with no adult to help us out, with no one to keep us safe, and it's happening over parts of our developmental trajectory for many months or many years, then 
our ability to attach to someone in a way that feels safe and secure can get really disrupted. People who are meant to take care of you, your primary caregivers, usually moms and dads, are the people that teach you those feelings of, of safety. And so when those are present, you learn at a very early age to not trust. And so when someone says to me, why don't I trust people? And they're 25 or 32 or 18, I say, because the moments in your life where you were really trying to learn how to trust were broken from the people whose job it was to be available and protect you. So that's kind of how I begin to talk to people and shift some of their narratives. I hope it also gives you a really good idea of how people might present this information to you in a way that feels kind of maybe defended or guarded or confused, right? Those five things where my brain is messed up. I worry about everything all the time. I'm always trying to take care of people or figure them out. I don't remember things. And why don't I trust people? And hopefully you've heard some information today that gives you a, a little bit more compassion for what they might be going through and b a pretty tangible, accessible way to explain to that person, there's nothing wrong with you. You experienced complex trauma, and this is a normal, predictable outcome when that occurs. So really, the the last question we're left with is, can this get better? Can I do things differently? And your patients are going to ask you that, and the answer is yes. Yes, things can get better. You can heal with time, with trust, with other people in your life that you learn about safety and security. You can regain healthy patterns of attachment. If you're a parent, you can um, break patterns of intergenerational abuse that you may have experienced as a child and create new meaning for you and your children. You can uh, find healing and trust again in relationships but it's going to take time. It's going to mean finding the right person who will listen to your story and help you create these new narratives and help you process these experiences. If you don't already subscribe to my newsletter, I encourage you to do so. Last week, I was talking about efficacious trauma therapies. And so I'll link up to those in the show notes so that if you're a person experiencing trauma, or if you're a, a healthcare professional who's trying to help people find resources for trauma, I really want you utilizing uh, research-supported and research-based techniques that you're referring people to. So I'll link up to those in the show note, and they're also on my newsletter. You can get my newsletter at www.dramyllc.com. So that's it for today, friends. I hope this gives you Um, some scripts that you might think about, different ways you're thinking about trauma, and ultimately ways to give the people and the patients that you work with hope. I'll see you next time. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.